We're in Genesis chapter 2, continuing our series on the book of Genesis. Last week we looked at marriage and creation, part 1, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. We're going to do look at the same passage again today, but let's hear God's word. Genesis chapter 2, starting to read at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Some years ago now, I remember a senior minister of a church I attended doing two sermons on marriage back-to-back from the same passage. At the time, I thought this was a bit odd and unnecessary. I now look back and think it was more a case of the arrogance of youth, uh, not recognising the wisdom of experience. Our culture today has such a distorted view of marriage and sexuality but it would take a good deal more than even two sermons to address all the issues involved. So today, as we come back to the same passage I looked at last week, I'm particularly keen to address some of the perhaps younger members of our congregation, maybe teenagers or those in their early 20s, because I think they are particularly vulnerable to the massive social experiment our society is currently undertaking. For example, I don't know if you heard the story late last year about how actress Keira Knightley has banned her three-year-old daughter from watching Disney films like Cinderella and The Little Mermaid. Essentially, because they involve female characters waiting around for a man to rescue them. Leaving aside what you think about all that, this topic was being discussed on the radio, and one woman rang in, and at one point she was explaining how her daughter saw a wedding ring one day somewhere. So this mother proceeded to explain to her daughter that one day she would would meet a man, fall in love, he would buy her a ring... And marry her. Apparently, her daughter turned to her and said, Or a woman, mummy. This was viewed very positively by both the mother and the host of that radio program. Now, in part one of this sermon entitled Marriage and Creation, I talked firstly about how, as Yahweh's image bearers, we have been created for community and within communities. And secondly, we learn that within this community, he, that is Yahweh, has provided marriage as the bedrock on which those communities are to be built. 
I suggested that Genesis 2 verse 24 is the Bible's foundational definition of marriage. And marriage involves a very important sequence of events. To put this slightly differently, marriage is a publicly permanent, procreational, God-given institution. Marriage is a a publicly permanent, procreational, God-given institution. It is to be honoured by all cultures and societies across time and space if we are to flourish and prosper as a race in the way that God originally intended. And so Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you can read it for yourself, it's there on page 5. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And so first, from verse 24, marriage involves a public leaving of one family to form a new or separate family unit. In most cultures, this is initiated by a public wedding ceremony. Marriage is a public affair and not simply a private matter. As a result, any member of the public is entitled to raise genuine impediments or objections to the formalization of the marriage between two people. What this means is seeing someone, having a thing, hooking up, hanging out, friends with benefits, shacking up together or cohabiting, etc., etc., are all less than what God originally intended for societies across our world. One article uh, written shortly after the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in May last year argued that marriage plays an essential role in binding human beings together in a civilization. The author went on to write the following. At a time when the concept of privatizing marriage is a growing temptation, the royal wedding is a reminder that humans by nature want to celebrate marriage as a public good. Second, marriage involves being united in a glue-like relationship. It's public and then it's permanent. That is a permanent, lifelong covenant relationship that we call marriage. A wedding is a bit like a doorway that you walk through. Marriage, on the other hand, is like the building on the other side of that doorway that needs to be built brick by brick over a lifetime of commitment and cooperation. A wedding is for a day, a marriage for a lifetime. You stick with the latter no matter what. Third, marriage is the only context in which two people are safe to engage in sexual intimacy or to become one flesh in the words of verse 24. Sex is so powerful that it belongs exclusively within a committed loving relationship where each person is saying to the other, I plan to spend the rest of my life with you no matter what. In summary then, as far as the Bible is concerned, relationships must become public and permanent before they become procreational or sexual in nature. Let me say that again. As far as the Bible is concerned, relationships must become public and permanent before they become procreational or sexual in nature. That is the Bible's baseline teaching on marriage. 
But in addition, there are some other things that need to be said, given our cultural context. And the first one is this. Marriage only involves one man and one woman. Marriage only involves one man and one woman. The by-life is a new and unusual 10-week reality dating show where all the contestants are bisexual plus. And if you've seen the program, that is, they are attracted to more than just one gender. Apparently, several celebrities have come out in recent years as pansexual. I wonder, are you familiar with that term? Because I wasn't until quite recently. American singer, songwriter, and actress Miley Cyrus describes herself thus. I always hated the word bisexual because that's even putting me into a box. I don't ever think about someone being a boy or someone being a girl. And apparently at an LGBTQ center, she saw, I quote, one human in particular who didn't identify as male or female. Looking at them, they were both beautiful and sexy and tough and vulnerable and feminine but masculine. And I related to that person more than I related to anyone in my life. Apparently, the former Hannah Montana star does not identify as explicitly male or female and is attracted, I assume, sexually to whomever she's attracted to, regardless of where they fall on the gender spectrum. This is the world of pansexuality. Why is that significant? Well, Sia, an Australian artist, record producer, and music video director, is one of a number of celebrities also identifies as being pansexual. Although she was once married to a man, apparently, prior to that, she nearly married a woman. I trust you'll begin to see where all this is heading. According to Genesis 1 verse 27, gender is binary. There are only two genders. Furthermore, in Matthew 19 and verse 4, Jesus himself mentions only two genders, and then he adds that this was the way the Creator made humanity in the beginning. And so for the overwhelming majority of the seven plus billion people on planet Earth, their gender is linked directly to their biological sex. There are a small minority who are exceptions to this, and they need our love and our care and our sympathy. But in Genesis chapter 2, in the verses leading up to verse 24, the Lord God revealed to the man that he created not another man for the man Adam, but rather a woman. At the end of verse 23 in the original, we read, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. These words illustrate the connectedness between these two people. In the revelation given to the man Adam, the woman Isha was made from part of the man Ish. This word play is preserved for us in the English words woman and man. These similar-sounding words deliberately help us to see the equality, the affinity, and unity between men and women. Both are created to reflect God's image, chapter 1, verse 27. And yet this must not blind us or make us naive about the very real 
and significant differences that exist between the sexes. In verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God promises to make a suitable helper for the man, Adam. Literally, the word suitable means opposite. She was the same flesh and blood as Adam, i.e. bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, verse 23, because she was taken from his flesh, as it were, yet at the very same time, she was opposite to him, other than him, different to him. She corresponds to him in a way that none of the other animals in the garden did, and yet she was also fundamentally and profoundly different to him in ways that transcended merely the biological. In a culture that is constantly trying to treat men and women as if they are exactly the same, one study conducted by the Marines in America found that women may now have equal right to fight on every front line as men, but they have an unequal chance of surviving on the battlefield. Why? Well, essentially because men and women are not the same. So please notice with me that based on these fundamental differences, the Lord God, acting like, if you like, the first ever father of the bride, brings the woman to the man as a sort of enactment of the first ever public wedding ceremony at the end of verse 22. But who are the witnesses, I hear you say? Well, God is the first witness. And then you and I, as we read this text, and the author, Moses, adds his editorial note this is why the rationale behind all this, verse 24, is that a man will publicly leave his family and bind himself permanently to a woman in marriage, leading to children being born into the world via their exclusive one flesh or sexual relationship. It's a bit of a cliche, I know, and some of us may be tempted to cringe, but cliches often exist for a reason, don't they? The fact remains, God brought to Adam an Eve and not a Steve. That is because marriage is between one man and one woman. This is the pattern, the model, the paradigm the Lord our God ordained or instituted from the very beginning. The reason why many Christians signed a petition with over 600,000 signatures objecting to the government's now successful attempts to legalize same-sex marriages because they saw this as an attack on this biblical, God-ordained definition of marriage. It was an attempt to redefine our creator God's definition of what constitutes marriage. It wasn't that they didn't want equality for same-sex couples. It was about the redefining the public redefining of a definition enshrined in all sorts of UK laws and laws all across the world. If marriage can now exist between two men or two women, why not between any other combination involving men and women? And who knows what or who else? Uh, during July 2017, the BBC reported the story of three Colombian men Victor, Manuel, and Alexandro. These men were being held as the first legal union between three men in the world. The legal success of this throuple 
raises the question, will we see three-way marriages in the future? The answer to that question, I fear, will not encourage Christians committed to traditional marriage. And what about those who consider themselves gender-fluid or pansexual? Diversity is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, isn't it? And is hailed as always and only ever a good thing. But in this area, brothers and sisters, it will lead to uncertainty and confusion. And the main casualties, I fear, will be the young, the insecure and the vulnerable among us. Whatever your struggles, Genesis wants to assure us that in the beginning, the Lord our God created gender to be binary and that marriage involves two genders and is therefore always between just one man and one woman. God's design is a wonderful and beautiful thing. We should marvel at it and celebrate it for the good thing that it is. So first, marriage involves only one man and one woman. Brothers and sisters, in an age of gender fluidity, same-sex marriage, and identity politics, we need to be clear in our thinking on this point if we call ourselves Christians. That's the first thing. Marriage only involves one man and one woman. Secondly, marriage only involves heterosexual sex. Marriage only involves heterosexual sex. Uh, some people want to know, where does it literally say in the Bible that sex before marriage is wrong or sinful? Or where in the Bible does it say it is wrong for two men or two women who genuinely love each other to have sex or even to get married to each other? Of course, the Bible is simply not written in this sort of question-answer style. The Bible is mainly a history book that tells of our Lord God's dealing with the human race as he works out a plan to rescue us from the foolish choices we so often make in life, namely to ignore his blueprint for how we should live. As this plan unfolds, he teaches us truths about himself and truths about ourselves. The opening chapters of the book of Genesis are foundational in this respect. Once we see this, we can begin to see why the Christian tradition has always fully endorsed heterosexual marriage and is unable to affirm homosexual relationships. Sexual feelings, a person's sexual orientation, cultural norms, and even a deep commitment to the other person are not and never have been the chief determining factors. The not good of the creator in chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis, that the man should be alone, is met by the Lord, not in the giving of another man, but the provision of a woman to both complete and complement the man. The woman completed the man in the sense that without her, only part of the image of God would be reflected in humanity. Again, chapter 1, verse 27. So God created literally the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I suggested last week that the word helper used in verses 18 and 20, far from implying the woman was some sort of inferior assistant or subordinate to Adam, she was rather a strong and vital helper equal to him. 
The man needed the woman's help to subdue and rule over the creation. Chapter 1, verse 28. You can imagine it. As Adam grew an abundance of fruit and vegetables in the garden and then puzzled over what to do with them, you can imagine the woman coming along and suggesting they cook the vegetables for supper while using the fruits to perhaps make dessert and some homemade jam or chutney. My point being that the man and the woman were both equal in status as image bearers of their great creator, but different in form and in function. They are complementary entities. Not complementary. Not complementary, uh, as in giving a compliment or saying nice things about someone, but rather complementary with an E. If they are going to fill the earth by being fruitful or increasing in number, they're going to have to work together. The woman is complementary in the sense of bringing completion to the man. The man will need to provide the seed that fertilizes the woman's womb, thus bringing new life into the fresh new world the Lord their God has given them to rule over. In the 1960s classical musical, My Fair Lady, the exasperated Professor Henry Iggins sings, Why can't a woman be more like a man? Well, as far as marriage and children are concerned, that simply would not work. The provision for the man of a woman may seem obvious, but we still need to see how strongly Genesis 2 emphasizes this. Literally, we read in verse 22, And the rib he, the Lord God, made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, The man said she shall be called woman because from man she was taken. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his woman. Verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his woman, and they felt no shame. Woman, man, woman, man, man, woman, man, woman. That is the Lord's creation pattern for marriage and therefore for sex. And so hundreds of years later, as the Apostle Paul sits in the city of Corinth, writing to Christians living in Rome in a completely different cultural context, he still sees what we have recorded in Genesis chapter 2 as God's ongoing pattern and plan. He treats what is in Genesis chapter 2 as what still ought to be in both Corinth and in Rome. And so to those uh, willfully suppressing and abandoning the truth about who God is, some important verses, Romans chapter 1, starting to read from verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Because of this, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The vertical exchange of replacing the truth about God for a lie, writes Paul, obviously causes a disruption in our relationship with our creator, which in turn, writes Paul, reverberates in our horizontal relationships with one another. The result of which, writes Paul, is that 
another exchange takes place as a direct result. The beauty of men-women relationships are exchanged for male-male and female-female relationships. Now, the reason Paul singles out homosexuality in Romans chapter 1 is not, I believe, because it is worse than any other sin, because it is not, but rather because it gives the clearest practical illustration of this distorted exchange that Paul talks about. Listen to the way John Piper, an evangelical Christian preacher and writer, puts it. Same-sex relationships stand as a vivid, enacted parable of the disordered sexuality that stems from a disordered relationship with God. I think that's exactly right. Same-sex relationships stand as a vivid, enacted parable of the disordered sexuality that stems from a disordered relationship with God. And by the way, we all in this room have a distorted sexuality, whether we are heterosexual or not. Paul refers heterosexual sex as natural and homosexual sex as unnatural. By natural and unnatural, Paul seems to mean in accordance with the creator's intention or design and contrary to the creator's intention and design, respectively. Standing behind these words is Paul's understanding of the biblical doctrine of creation recorded for us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the Bible, any kind of sexual activity outside of the pattern of Genesis 2 verse 24 is therefore wrong or sinful. This includes the person who occasionally hooks up with a non-boyfriend or girlfriend for sex. The couple who are going out and think they might get married one day anyway, so what does it matter? The couple who are engaged and are committed to each other in every other way. It includes the woman who has left her husband and moves in with another woman. It includes the two men who have been committed to each other for the past 20 years in a largely monogamous relationship. One does not need to call into question or cast doubts on whether any of these people really genuinely love each other. The point is their sexual conduct falls outside of the pattern God intended for all human sexual relationships. And why? Well, because marriage involves only marital, heterosexual sex. The very last verse in Genesis chapter 2 is there to affirm the rightness and the goodness behind God's good design for marriage and sex. Look at verse 25 of chapter 2 of Genesis 2. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Only marriage as God originally intended leads to true human and societal flourishing. Brothers and sisters, again, in an age of gender fluidity, same-sex marriage and gender identity politics, if we claim to be Christians, we need to be thoroughly convinced and convicted of this. Otherwise, we'll be swept along by a culture that insists on shifting all sorts of safe and helpful Boundary stones. Lost. Marriage only involves one man and one woman. Marriage only involves heterosexual sex. But lastly, marriage only involves procreation. Marriage only involves procreation. I think it's fair to say that 50 years ago, if an unmarried woman had a child, 
she would have been frowned upon or even ostracized by members of her local community. No doubt she would have been treated in ways that were ungracious and, let's be honest, wrong. But the prevailing culture of that time accepted that the best place to raise a child was within the context of a loving, committed marriage, relationship between one man and one woman. In 2012, the proportion of children born to unmarried mothers hit a record 47.5%, according to the ONS, Office of National Stats. This figure has risen over years from 11% in 1979. If this trend continues, it won't be long before most children in the UK will be born to parents who are not married. And yet evidence quite clearly shows that children growing up with married parents tend to have better life chances. In families where parents break up, children do less well at school, are more likely to suffer mental health problems, and are more likely to abuse substances like drugs or alcohol. And yet despite all this, we live in a society where increasingly people think expanding individual rights is what will bring them greater freedom and with it increased happiness and fulfillment. So the advent of the contraceptive pill, combined with a more relaxed moral framework that exalts individual choice over and above one's moral responsibility to family and local community, has meant more and more people have been able to decouple sex and parenting from marriage. It is sad to me that often when you listen to discussions in the media concerning problems with young people, whether knife crime, drug use, or teenage pregnancy, often it is about how government or schools should be doing more. And we do need more police officers, don't we? And youth workers or after-school clubs. No doubt these are all contributing factors. But I want to suggest to you that the heart of the problem is that increasingly, as a culture, thinking we know best, we have abandoned what the Bible says about marriage, family, and parenting. It cannot be denied that from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that according to the Bible, sex, childbirth, and parenting are all intimately linked to marriage. The Bible puts marriage, sex, and parenting firmly together, and they should not be separated if society is to flourish in the way God originally intended. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not in any way denigrating single parents, single-sex couples, or blended families. In fact, from the age of seven, my twin sister and I were raised by my maternal grandmother. And for much of that time, she was our lone guardian. She was 90 years of age last month. And if I may say so, I think she did a pretty good job. Yet I have little doubt in my mind that I would be a more rounded person if I had been raised by both a mother and a father growing up. That's because marriage between one man and one woman is the best incubator for children. To coin a phrase by a certain Canadian professor I quite like to listen to, the data is very clear on this, folks. The Christian Institute recently highlighted how the gay singer Will Young recently featured on CBBS, the BBC's channel for children under six, to read a bedtime story. 
to mark LGBT History Month. He chose the book, Two Dads, a story about a boy who was adopted and raised by two fathers. Apparently, the BBC will feature more LGBT stories on the show over the next few weeks to promote inclusivity and to celebrate LGBT lifestyles. Young put it this way, families in all forms should be recognised and celebrated. Whether that's two dads, two mums, families with a mum and a dad, those with single parents, adoptive parents, and so on. Instinctively, I want to say amen to inclusivity and to celebration. This all sounds so good, so right, and so loving. Indeed, the book Two Dads begins by saying, having two dads can't be bad. But Genesis forces us to challenge this assumption. No, marriage alone, heterosexual marriage alone, is for procreation. And yet, when it comes to marriage, sex, and parenting, we have all failed, have we not? Lest we be tempted to point the finger. And yet, when it comes to marriage, sex, and parenting, it's just as well that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ who died to save us, is for failures just like me, and just like you.